Secrets Mothers Keep by Linda J. Bettenay Author's Note This is a work of fiction based on historical fact. Some actual events did occur. The murder of Harold E. Smith, the assault on Mrs. Smith and her children, the trial and the subsequent execution of Clifford Hume are real events. Some real names and real events where they've been documented in the historical record have been used. However, their characters and other incidents in their lives have been fictionalized. Mrs. Parrot Smith's name has been altered deliberately. The characterization of this individual in particular has been significantly altered. From relatives' testimony, the character in this novel in no way represents the real person. Many of the names, characters, places and incidents included in this story are the products of the author's imagination or are used fictitiously. Any resemblance to persons living or dead is entirely coincidental. Synopsis A brutal murder occurs on an isolated farm in the 1920s in Western Australia and the victim's wife and children are violently abused scandalizing the whole country. The killer has no apparent motivation, but admits his guilt and the abused wife has to rebuild her shattered life. Secrets Mother's Keep traces how three lives are entwined, a young English boy with learning difficulties and the precursors of mental illness learns to cope with his black moods and poor social skills, he faces numerous challenges and finds support and strategies that enable him to survive. Finally, an event makes him crack. Lily is a feminist with a strong social conscience. The novel follows her life and her loves until she marries her eminently capable partner, Harold. Harold is murdered, and Lily and her children are subjected to horrific abuse. The resultant infamy of the case threatens her reputation and her core values. Her strong convictions lead her to respond in a most unlikely manner. The interplay of characters combined create a story reflecting the values of their time in history, but with themes which still resonate today. Dedication For my husband, Mike, whose patience, support and everlasting love has kept me going when it would have been easier to give up, and for his grandfather, Harold E. Smith, whose life was cut short far too soon, and who has lain alone and rarely visited for far too long. We now remember you. Smithy In affectionate memory of the late Harold Eaton Smith, who was familiarly known to us all as Smithy, so long, old pal, across the Great Divide, you've solved the greatest problem Parsons preached. And though we had no chance to say goodbye, here's hoping that the long-sought goal you've reached. It's hard, old pal, to think you did your bit and like a true Australian faced the Hun, and then to come back home to sunny Aussie and meet your fate beneath a murderer's gun. You had no chance. The coward sort of that. This fiend who dealt out death, relentless, grim, and even struck down helpless little children. The hangman's rope is far too good for him. 
So long, old pal. There's one great consolation. Far down the ages rings the angel's song that God will surely comfort all your loved ones and heal their broken hearts. Old pal, so long. Fagan. Prologue. Present Day. Peggy lay quietly as her death day approached, her eyes staring at the hospital white ceiling and slowly revolving fan, the clack of the fan revolutions counting down the years of her existence as her life force gradually seeped away. Her son sat close to her in companionable silence, holding her hand and staring at her aged face. Her days were now numbered in single digits and no longer in multiples. Peggy was at peace, just the last few clockwork breaths to achieve, automatic after nearly a century of habit. Her body hung on, but her mind was locked, vague memories swirling of events far away in time. Was she conscious that, at last, the ghastly story would now be heard? The truth, hidden for so long, would now be colourfully told, embellished and embroidered as a tale of long ago. But would the storytellers understand how lives had been lost, innocence taken and childhoods ruined? Perhaps those who heard the tale would be interested, fascinated, embarrassed, and perhaps even ashamed. But for those who had actually been there, the reality had been life-altering. Shame, pain, loss, unwanted public notoriety, financial ruination. The day the laughter left her mother Lillian and her family lost faith and trust in God and their fellow man. Lying with her last will and testament was the letter which would outline the events. Not to be read until my death, the instructions that would guide the telling. Locked in her moribund body, her eyes were the last to have witnessed the gruesome events of June 22, 1928. She was just the baby to all the actors with major parts in the main event. She was still just a week off her first birthday, a milestone she nearly didn't achieve. And now, with all the actors gone... As the very last, she would tell what had stayed hidden for so long. Her innings was one to be proud of, with all but one of the years granted as an addendum. Her award for surviving the killer blows that should have snuffed out her life at eleven months and three weeks of age. Her life had not been sad. She had recovered well from the early setback. The eyes of a baby, even when unbelievable horrors are witnessed, do not register lasting shock. She had lived a great life. She had loved and laughed and was satisfied. Peggy's mind didn't register how events decades before irrevocably altered her family. Her sisters also recovered, but their scars went deeper. Their eyes had seen more. They registered the pain and horrors in that deep place where hurt children store up resentment and grief. However, the sisters' memories were vague, explanations never given, and all three shared an unspoken belief that Lillian had kept some parts 
hidden away from them. Some things are just too private to share. Three Lives Cliffhanger January 26, 1910 Beeston Hill, Leeds, England On the 26th January, ten-year-old Clifford Hume was perfecting the art of being invisible. He wanted not to be noticed, so that afterwards, when asked, people just couldn't recall whether he was there or not. At school, this was really important. If he was invisible, then he wouldn't be bullied. No one would tease him or laugh at him or cringe when they were told to go and sit next to him. Plus, Mr. Robinson, his teacher and expert tyrant, wouldn't ask him any questions and get really cranky when he didn't know the answer. At home, being invisible was critical. If he wasn't there, he couldn't see what his dad did to his mother, Mammy. He couldn't see the brutal fights. He couldn't get punished when he couldn't get his clumsy body out of the way of Dar's flailing fists. He couldn't hear Mammy wailing. He couldn't feel the gut-wrenching guilt that rose like bile in his gut after a fight when he'd not been able to protect her from him again. On the 26th of January, Clifford had had a better day than most. School had just gone back after the Christmas break. He was now in fifth form, tall and gangly, with what his older brother Albert called a permanently dopey look on his face. Clifford had managed to stay out of everyone's way nearly all day. He'd answered present when Mr. Robinson called the roll, but otherwise he'd not said a word to anyone. He hadn't looked at any other person, and he didn't think anyone had looked much at him, except when he got the cuts before recess, because he hadn't copied the sentences off the board. But this was normal, and the other kids didn't laugh at him so much any more, because he'd also learnt not to cry. Mr. Robinson only hit him five times over the knuckles today, and this was bearable, far better than when Da hit him. He hadn't even been kept in at lunchtime, because he hadn't got any of his sums right today, and his lunch hadn't been stolen, so he actually got to eat it all. His Spanish mum had made him chorizo, bologna, and cheese. The other kids couldn't stand the stinky smell, so they left it alone. Yep, this had been a pretty good day. So he was a bit stunned when Mr. Robinson asked him to stay back after school. Mr. Robinson waited until all the students had left. It took a while because Maisie and Emily wanted to clean up their desks first. Right little teachers' pets they were, always trying to please. And now they were alone. Cliff kept his eyes down. It was always better that way. Look someone in the eyes and they start talking to you and prying into your business. Cliff assumed his dopey, smiley mask face. "'Clifford, why do you come to school?' Mr. Robinson asked, his tone steady and with just a hint of sarcastic malice, which was totally wasted on Clifford. Cliff just stared slightly away from him. Focus on the wall, he thought. He stood in front of his teacher with his shoulders stooped. He tried to make his big frame fit into the least space available— tried to fold in his bits so he was hardly even there. 
This was a stupid question. Mr. Robinson knew the answer, so why would he ask such a dumb question? He had to go to school. There was nowhere else to go. Home was not an option. He wanted to get away from there as much as possible. The streets were not safe. Every time he'd truanted in the past, he'd got caught by the bullies or the police. No, sir, he would far rather be in school. And the schoolroom had a fire, and this meant warmth. This was the only chance he had of any heat in a bitter January in Leeds. Well, answer me, boy. I know you're dumb, but you're not totally stupid. Why do you bother to turn up? You haven't learned anything since you've been here. You still can't read, you can't write, and your math skills are non-existent, so why are you here? You just take up space. As Mr. Robinson got going into his tirade, his lips started growing in size and spittle came out of his mouth. He always had fat, full lips. They seemed to be too big for his skull-like face, and they started to move really fast, quivering up and down. Clifford put his head down. He started to panic. Mr. Robinson was starting to look like the blue cod on the fishmonger trolley in the high street, the one that wasn't quite dead yet, mouth opening into an O before the fat, blubbery lips snapped shut. The cod that was Mr. Robinson was starting to thrash about. He was even starting to smell fishy. But Clifford was having a good day. Mr. Robinson is not really a fish, he thought. Don't get panicky. Don't show any fear. Put the dopey smile back on your face and look away. Be invisible. It's useless, the cod-like Mr. Robinson yelled, hooking Clifford back into the moment and reeling him even closer. I'm wasting my time and your place in this class can be given to someone who wants to learn, a child who's polite and respectful. Are you even in there? he shouted. Mr. Robinson grasped Clifford's head and roughly forced it around to face his own. The cod's face was far too close for Clifford. Fishy eyes swivelled, probing his private thoughts and staring into him. The pain of this invasion was huge. He felt revolted and nausea waved within. Clifford gulped and Mr. Robinson let out an outward breath that came out as a hiss, the steamy, tropical breath was a concoction of his lunchtime snack of sardines mixed with cigar and a whiff of medicinal whiskey imbibed just a few minutes before. Clifford put his hands over his face to black out the unwanted sensations, but not before his lunch came up and projectile vomit flew out all over Mr. Robinson. The cod was now covered in Clifford's vomit. Two hours ago it had been carizzo bologna and cheese. Now it was a reeking brownish goo. Mr. Robinson roared and stepped back. You little bastard, he screamed. You did that on purpose. This is my best suit, ruined, and you've covered me with your foul spew. I was trying to help you. You're an ungrateful whelp. Get out of here, he roared. This will be the last day you ever come into my classroom, you stinking little dago horse son. Clifford was not only good at being invisible, he also knew just when to disappear, and this seemed like the perfect time. 
He was only ten, but he bolted from that classroom like he was trying out for the Olympics. He didn't stop to retrieve his jacket or to say a fond goodbye to his desk, his inkwell, or even the stove, the only thing he'd ever really liked in that room. He tore from the room and then out the front entrance of the school with its bleak Georgian façade that had been built on the site of the old workhouse. No, he didn't stop to reminisce about his good old school days. In renovating the Holbeck Union Workhouse to become the Beeston Hill School, little in the way of improvements or comforts had been incorporated. Lives were still being ruined in that place, like they had for the last two centuries. Clifford left and did not go back. He knew of a little nook in the back of the bakery that retained its warmth throughout the day, long after the morning loaves were cooked. It had been a great hidey-hole when he was six. Now at ten he did not really fit, but this was a time for being as small as possible, so his gangly legs were pulled in and he cowered down as the daylight hours faded. He waited while the anxiety drained away and the madness left him. Clifford stayed there until the darkness came. The last vestiges of warmth had fled the bricks, and hunger pangs gripped his body. It was time to go home. As a ten-year-old slinking down the lane, Clifford was proud he'd not disturbed much air in getting home. No one had seen him. No one had noticed him. He'd been like a ghost moving through the cold night, with just his warm breath leaving a vapour trail to show where he'd been. The door of his family home loomed in front of him, and he listened keenly for raised voices behind the barrier. Not yet. Just the gentle rise and fall, burble of his brothers and his mum. Da mustn't be home yet. Clifford eased himself inside and slipped unnoticed into the back of the room, away from the light. "'What are you doing, skulking in at this time? "'And where have you been?' "'This was his older brother, Albert. "'At twelve, he was nearly the size of a man. "'He sounded gruff, but he was the protector of the family. "'He picked on Clifford, everyone did, "'but he also stood up for him when he was getting pummeled by bullies. "'Cliff could turn his back on Albert and know he wouldn't be hurt. "'This was Clifford's measure of trust. "'He only trusted three people.' Albert, Mammy, and his baby brother William. Well, he was only six, so hadn't had much time to develop yet, but Cliff liked him. Albert told Clifford this was his triangle of trust. Look, mate, you're a bit dim, and in life folks are going to take advantage of you, Albert had explained. For some weird reason, you're not too good with people. Some will pick on you, some will cheat you, but there are just a few people who you need to let in. You'll know who they are. They'll feel good to you. These are the people who you can rely on. How will I know who they are? Clifford had mumbled. Even with Albert, he didn't look straight at him, but there was good air between them when Albert talked to him. He was not so anxious when Albert was there. Albert had put his hand on Clifford's shoulder, Cliff did that involuntary twitch thing which occurred whenever anyone touched him. But then it was good. He relaxed. 
The hand on his shoulder felt warm, but it didn't burn. It felt strong, and his shoulder felt safe. Albert had explained things. It feels like when you're sitting with me, your mammy. It's like when you're playing around with young William. You know we're not going to hurt you. You can feel that things are good. You know you can turn your back on us, and when you turn round, we'll still be there. We'll protect you. This is trust. It comes when folks love you. And they will, if you let them in. We are your triangle of trust. You will always need some people, just a few. Choose well. They will keep you safe. Albert was the only one in the family who had ever faced up to Dar. This had started last June. There'd been a terrible fight. Dar had come home blind drunk and so angry. He usually took it out on Mammy and then on Clifford, but Clifford had learnt to become invisible, so it just wasn't so much fun to beat someone up if they don't even let out a whimper. And Clifford had learnt how to not make a sound no matter how much it hurt. Clifford thought Mammy was a bit stupid. She always answered him back. Whenever he was apologising next morning for her black eye or cut lip or whatever injury he'd inflicted on her the night before, Dar would justify the violence because a nugging annoyed him. But Mammy just didn't know when to shut up. She'd been born free. She'd had aspirations, and she felt she'd been sold into the slavery of a loveless marriage. Mammy still wanted to live life on her terms, and Dar just wanted her to obey him. On the night of the big fight, Mammy had missed the lot. Dar had knocked her out cold after she yelled a Spanish obscenity at him, which was silly because he didn't know what it meant, but by the look on Mammy's face it was really as rude as she could go. Now that she was comatose, he was still keen on hurting someone else, so he turned on young William. This had never happened before. Six-year-old children are meant to be safe in their own homes. William had the looks of a cherub, all smiles and dimples, with black smiley eyes and curly black hair. He's up to laughing, playing peekaboo and doing somersaults, not being punched in the face by a screaming pig masquerading as a father. Da had punched young William in the face, and both of his front teeth had come out. Blood spurted out. William screamed. Clifford faded further back into the wall. Mammy was still out cold, and Albert went berserk. Clifford had never seen anything like it. Calm, placid Albert, ever the peacemaker, just lost it. He roared and went at Dar like an enraged bull. They wrestled and screamed, smashing up all the furniture, and blood was streaming down Dar's face. When it was over, Dar was just a bloodied pulp. He was whimpering, coughing, and spitting out blood and bits of teeth. Albert stood up straight. He hadn't even been scratched. He turned to Dar. Don't ever lay a hand on any of them again. It was Albert's voice all right, but it didn't quiver, sounding all grown up. It was probably the voice Mr. Robinson talked about when he would say, Read it with gravitas. Then Albert turned to Clifford and said, Fix up young William and Mummy, Cliff and then he turned on his heel and walked out. Since that horrible fight when Albert had punched Dar back, 
Dar didn't pick so many fights when Albert was home. The physical violence had got less, but he still yelled abuse and tried to slap Mammy whenever Albert was out. Big bully fights little bully. Little bully takes it for just so long, then little bully fights back and big bully's days are numbered. And that was just what was happening in the Hume's little happy family. The leader of the pack was changing. On the night of Albert's fight back, Dar had gone into a convulsion of coughing after the fight. Ever since then, Dar had coughed and spluttered his way through life. Two weeks ago, Dar had found out that he had tuberculosis. The family had suspected this, what with the angry bouts of coughing and phlegm-clearing, and they'd had to have spittoon balls around the house. Now, with Dar sick, this had meant less money. Dar had worked for the best Leeds bootmakers, Mason and family. He'd worked there for twenty-five years, but this had not mattered when they sacked him as soon as they heard about his diagnosis. Apparently, the letter of dismissal, still open on the cabinet, had said that they were having to let people go as orders had dried up, but Dar was sure it was because they knew he was soon going to be a corpse, and they may as well train up a new young bloke now. Clifford wasn't sorry his Dar was dying. Mammy had said he should be, but Clifford found it hard to feel for anyone, let alone someone who'd been brutal to him since birth. He is a buen hombre, a good man, she explained. He gets frustrated with life, and when he drinks too much, this frustration comes out with his fists. He has done his best for us. Life could have been a lot worse. Mammy was stroking Clifford's hair as she said this. Mammy was in Cliff's triangle of trust. She always had been, and her touch didn't make him jerk. It made him purr. He looked at his mother, seeing remnants of her beauty, stunning, coal-black, curly ringlets, dark eyes which danced and glinted with light, but this was marred by the black hole left by the lack of a front tooth. Deep, jagged scars near her eyes showed the cruel blows she'd suffered. The most obvious thing was that her skin was yellowing and starting to wrinkle on her once flawless face. Mediterranean skin needs sunlight to be healthy. Her Spanish glow had been all but extinguished by the damp, dank climate of Leeds. The end of the abuse had come a bit too late for Mammy. Her loveliness nearly snuffed out already, and she was not yet thirty years old. The photo on her mantelpiece showed her as she was twelve years ago, a wild-haired, dark-eyed Castilian princess. Mammy, whose real name was Rosa Kujowski, and her sister Estrella, had been brought from Spain as continental servants by Lord Lascales from the manor. They'd been lured here with offers of a fine salary and a wonderful life free from the persecution Spanish Jewesses suffered in their home country. The girl's father had fled the pogroms in Poland and had landed in Spain as a twenty-year-old, there he had met a stunning Sephardic Jewess, and together they dreamed of a life free from discrimination for their family. But Spain was not a safe haven for Jews, so a new life in England had seemed filled with promise. Clifford loved that photo. 
Most folks in 1910 didn't have any photographs, but this one had been taken in 1898 for Lord Lascales to show off his pretty new maids. Mammy was dressed in Spanish clothes with big earrings and castanets held high. The photo was sepia-toned, but Clifford knew that his mammy's skirt was blood-red, the top was emerald green, and the jewellery was real gold. They had dressed us up to look like Spanish dancers, Mammy recalled. The skirt was red silk. It had so many different hues and colours when the light touched it. It was cool and smooth to touch and felt wonderful on my skin. So exquisite. I wanted so badly to keep those clothes. They told us that we could have lots of fine clothes when we go to England. We thought we were going to capture their hearts and both marry English lords and live in huge castles. Their fine lord had paraded them like peacocks, a fad to have foreign servants in one's employ. His friends had been impressed. This had created quite a stir, and for a while everyone in society was getting their help from the continent. The girls had played their part, working just hard enough, flirting with the men and filling the house with Spanish music and mirth. The Lord thought it was quaint to have a pair of prattling Spanish maids in the manor house, but the dream didn't last too long. The Hume boys knew the story well. The sisters had been sacked and Mammy's sister had gone loony and had been locked up in the asylum after some unwanted attention from three blue-blood lords celebrating after a hunting party. His trailer was really roughed up, Mummy said. She never recovered, and just screamed whenever she saw men. Even today, she sees visions when she's awake, and the oldest trailer is lost to us. Lord Lascales was good about it, though. He had made sure she was taken care of, she was admitted into a quality asylum somewhere up north. What Mammy didn't say was that Lord Lascales had hosted the hunting party, but things had gone horribly wrong. The hunt was enjoyed, the drink flowed, the ladies went to bed, and the men got more raucous. Lord Lascales had asked the two Spanish girls to do some provocative dancing for his friends. Estrella was so excited. Really, try your hardest to please, Rosa. This is our chance to snare a lord. That Lord Milbourne is so handsome, and he's almost down the aisle with me already. She'd laughed with eager anticipation. They'd dressed up in the costumes and done the segadilla as well as they could without music, beguiling, flirtatious, both evoking Carmen. The intoxicated guests were impressed. The girls flirted. They were demure and charming, the lords besotted and very drunk. Mammy and Estrella were so proud. They were young, they were beautiful, and they were admired by great, powerful, and very rich English lords. Lord Lascales had collapsed into a drunken stupor. He snored while his three friends kept drinking, got louder, and things turned a bit rough. They grabbed Mammy and Estrella, kissing them roughly and fondling their breasts. Mummy struggled, broke free, and ran from the room. The drunken men then set out to ravage Estrella Kujowski. 
the 16-year-old virgin Spanish Jewess, full of innocent hopes and dreams of a better life. Mammy had crept back, and she watched the whole thing from behind the curtains. She was mortified, terrified, and fixed to her position as a reluctant voyeur, powerless to help, because if she was discovered, this would be her fate too. The men kissed Estrella roughly, bit her breasts, held her legs open, and then forced themselves into her. All three had their turn, and then they raped her again. When she screamed, they hit her. She stopped screaming and just cried silently throughout the ordeal. The men then all stood up, wiped themselves off, and went upstairs. Mammy could hear them laughing and slapping each other on the back as they readied themselves for bed. It'd been a great day of hunting, and then they'd taken the spoils of the hunt as was their divine right as English lords. Of course, they never mentioned it to their ladies next morning. Other silent, judgmental servants came in and cleaned up the room and helped Lord Lascales up to his bedchamber. They did not go anywhere near the near-naked, ravaged, weeping body of Estrella. Mammy went in and carried Estrella to the room they shared. She bathed her, soothed her wounds, and put her to bed. Estrella never recovered. The other servants didn't speak about it to Mammy. They looked away from her. They despised the sisters for their lewd and provocative behavior. They thought they'd brought the attack on themselves and had brought shame on their lord. Rosa was ashamed. Lord Lascales had been really embarrassed, not about the attack, but about Mammy. He did not really want her around any more. What is the use of a pair of Spanish maids if one just jabbers and the other one just skulks around? Plus, Mammy kept pestering him about why he didn't do something about the assault and his criminal friends. She was Spanish, and she just didn't understand that servants shouldn't question their superiors. So Lord Lascales had asked his man to fix up this messy situation. His man came up with the perfect settlement. Estrella would be placed in an asylum and looked after for the rest of her days. Mammy would be handed over to William Hume. William was a 36-year-old single man who had a good steady job in Leeds, working in a factory making boots. He was also a mean-spirited drunkard who had a tendency to violence. William was very keen on having a free home for life in one of the Lord's buildings on Beeston Hill, and a dowry of one hundred pounds, plus he would score a lovely young Spanish wife to boot. Lord Lascales was pleased, William was happy, and Mammy learnt the dreams do not come true. This was the same house Clifford Hume, aged ten years, had sidled back into at 7 p.m. on a bitterly cold night on the 26th of January, 1910. The accommodation was better than most. Two rooms in a back-to-back, red-brick housing tenement. The lower floor had a central table with four rough chairs and a wet area for washing and cooking. The toilets and laundry were shared with other tenants. The top room had rude cots around the perimeter, with a curtained-off room for Mammy. Mammy used to share this with Dar, but after the birth of young William, she had denied her husband his rights, 
and she kept six-year-old William in the bed to keep him away. Da would bellow about this from time to time. The Castilian witch should know her place and succumb to her husband's needs. Da had realized that his lovely Spanish wife had an untamed, indomitable spirit, and this just added to his mean-spiritedness and general life misery. The Hume home was warmed with a fireplace, but the family could rarely afford the coal at night. This was more often lit in the day when Mammy boiled the kettle or prepared the soup for supper. Tonight the coals were glowing red, and the room was filled with the wonderful smell of sopa de ayo, Castilian garlic soup. Mummy found it very hard to get the ingredients, and often had to substitute. But when she made Spanish food, it was always appreciated by her boys. It also meant that Da was not expected home. Da hated all that Spanish muck, and preferred good, solid English stodge. Candles on the table glowed their welcome. Clifford had a warm feeling that the room really felt like a home tonight but he wasn't too sure he should trust this feeling just yet. Mammy was at the stove, stirring the pot. The scent of the food, reminiscent of Spanish sunshine, filled the room. Rosa Kujowski's dark eyes settled on her second son. Where have you been, Clifford? I have been worried. What have you been doing? yelled Albert. You have spew all down your front. Clifford looked down at his shirt. Brown, curdling spew, dried out now, had made a river and some tributaries over the cloth. Clifford peeled his shirt over his head, carefully so the vomit didn't get on him or drop on the floor, and he dropped it in the laundry bucket and went to grab another from his clothes chest. His loose-framed body was now revealed. He'd grown two or three inches over the last year, and his body had started to fill out. Clifford had the musculature of his Castilian relatives. He shared little resemblance to the skinny, wasted, pale white body of his da. This was revealed here because he was not scared, and he occupied his body proudly. Cliff was becoming a man. I vomited on Mr. Robinson, and he threw me out to school. He said school were wasted on me, cause I can't read or write or do sums. Cliff blurted out. He'd discovered that silence only works for so long. When you need to speak, get as much out as quickly as possible. Everyone else will fill in all the blanks. Serves the old geezer right. So did you vomit on him before he said this or after? He's a vicious, despicable child molester, Albert said with laughter and a broad smile. He was really proud his little loony brother had got one back on one of his worst tormentors. I vomited on him after he said it because I thought he was a codfish. His breath stank and I just couldn't stop it and it all came up all over him, Cliff explained. Mammy, I ran out without getting my stuff. I'm real sorry. I've lost my coat and I can't ever go back there again to get it. These three people in the room were his triangle of trust, and they could handle the fact that Mr. Robinson was a codfish. He could tell them about his thoughts. They translated his visions into a workable reality, and they guided him through the crazy maze of life. Fishy, fishy, very slishy, chimed in young William. 
Oh, mi amado hijo. My lovely son, you do not have an easy life, enthused Mammy. Well, do not worry. You will be a man now, and you will go to work. You are growing large. We will just pretend that you are twelve and not ten. Da is not needing his job any more, so there will be a position for you at Masonham family. The foreman at the bootmaker's factory will be pleased, because he was a bit afraid I might agitate a bit and threaten to take Da's sacking to the union. Mammy was on a roll. She had it all worked out. She was friendly with the foreman, Joe Blutel, who had a bit of a crush on her. Albert, you can come with me tomorrow early in the morning. We will go down and convince them that it will be good to take on young Cliff. Mammy turned to Clifford. You will be good at that job, and the work will be good for you. Dad's job was just punching holes into boot leather for the bootlaces. You don't need reading, writing, or sums for that. Just concentration and hard work. You'll be warm and safe, and the pay will help us now that Dad's salary has gone. Don't worry about the jacket. It was too short for you anyway, and I will save some offcuts from the clothing factory and make you something new, a working man's jacket. You will need to borrow Dad's for tomorrow. You have to make a good impression. Mammy was into organizing mode. Her face took on a youthful expression as she flicked her ebony locks from her face. The candlelight didn't show any hint of grey. Her eyes glinted, and the beautiful Castilian lady was back. Where's Da? Clifford asked tentatively. Mammy put her eyes down. A ghost of a smile crossed her face. She moved across to the table and served four plates of hot, steamy Castilian garlic soup, complete with chunks of ham. Already on the table, Clifford could see crusty bread with some real pats of butter. He was salivating in anticipation. Albert's smile wasn't hidden. It spread across his face. He answered, The neighbors complained about Dar's constant coughing. Mammy had a visit from some bloke from the West Riding County Council's Public Health and Housing Inspectorate. He said Da couldn't stay here coughing because his sputum had TB germs in it and everyone would get the disease. So they took him away in a big ambulance wagon. Da was real mad. He was yelling and screaming, but there wasn't anything any of us could do. He's in the West Riding Tuberculosis Sanatorium. It has a chest clinic and he'll get some good treatment, but he'll not be coming home again. Clifford supposed he should have been sad. Da had gone for good, but he was filled with golden, bubbly happiness. Everywhere the happiness flowed up and out of him like a fountain. It frothed out of every limb and Clifford was floating. He didn't need to be absorbed into the walls any more. He could move into the centre of this safe, cheery place. He would be safe from Da. He would be happy in this home. He would have a good job, and he would bring home money every week to help out. On the 26th of January, 1910, ten-year-old Clifford Hume had really had a very good day.